0: So we have been in a series of messages. This one's a, a little bit different. Um, we're, we're focusing in one passage in the Old Testament uh, over multiple weeks. And so we're, we're looking at the different facets of this one little piece of prophecy found in the book of Isaiah. And what it says to us about christmas about the gift that god has given us in christ and so uh, thus far we have looked at this through the lens of god's gift of hope to us we talked about how this prophecy was given at a time when there was little hope in among the people to whom the prophecy was originally delivered Uh, they looked around them and the world was falling apart Uh, Their neighbors had all been overrun by foreign powers. Uh, Their little postage stamp of a country was at risk of total collapse and destruction. And they knew it. And God speaks these words into the darkness of that context and gives hope. And then we we looked last week at this aspect of this passage that brings joy to our hearts. The, The sense that... We are desired by God, that he is crazy about us, as sick and weird as that sounds, that God would want us in his family, but he does, and he goes to great lengths to demonstrate that to us and to complete uh, his plan and his will in our lives and to bring us to himself. And so the joy that comes from being included eternally in God's plan and God's family And this week, I want us to look at probably the the aspect of this passage that is the most difficult to see. It's slightly complex, but it's very much a part of what the prophet is conveying about this child who will be born and the gift of forgiveness that will be part of what he brings into our reality. And so I want, you to, I want you to follow along with me in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, as we look at this passage through the lens of forgiveness. What does this, this baby bring to us in terms of God's forgiveness? And so I'm going to begin in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I wanted to just include a couple of other passages just for some perspective and background. First, to sort of tie this idea of burden that you find in verse 4 of the Isaiah passage we just read to the idea of our sin, I want to read uh, from Psalm 38, verse 4. This is a. Uh, I would call it a, a common or, or rudimentary understanding of the, of the Old Testament mentality that our sin is a burden. And so we'll just sort of demonstrate that through this one little verse. In Psalm 38, verse 4, it reads, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And so you see this association between the, the sin that we all bear in our own hearts and lives and the, the weight and burden of that sin upon the human heart. Matthew eleven twenty seven through 30, you have two aspects of the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy reflected here. Both this idea that all authority will be given to him, that the government will be on his shoulders, he will take responsibility, uh, and then this idea of forgiveness and, and relief from the burden. But let me read these verse, verse verses to you from Matthew 11, uh, verses 27 through 30. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son... And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So... Burden. Wonder what comes to each of your minds. This I don't want you to shout anything out. Don't get excited. We're Presbyterian for crying out loud. We're not gonna, you know. But I, I do wonder, like, what comes into each individual mind as you think about that word spiritually—the word burden—that what what is in your case, in your instance. What what functions in your life as a burden to your soul? And if you're like me, there are two sides to that coin, that burden coin. The one side is the, let's call it the stupid things that I've done or not done. But the stuff that's my responsibility that i have fallen short in so my my sin right and we can we could all just like spend the rest of the day kicking ourselves for whatever our past entails i'm pretty sure most of us could participate in that right the other side of that coin of burden is for most of us that set of things that have been done to us by others or not done for us by others who should have done them. Um, This is a, a different component of burden that we live with things that are the result of the actions and decisions or inactions and indecisions of others that tend to want to define us and how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we live in relation to that sense of burden that has been placed upon us by the actions of others. So, the idea that God is going to give birth to a son who will literally lift that burden from each heart is quite miraculous. Um, If you think about a a king or a president or or any leader of that scale, they're really only able to accomplish anything, if they're able to accomplish anything at all, uh, for large groups of people. This king, this son that will be born, is a different king altogether in that he can enter into your heart and my heart simultaneously and surgically lift the burden of our sin and those things which have been sinned against us, if you will, Uh, in Every single heart that he engages. So, I want you to think about that for a minute. This passage isn't just about some grand fulfillment of a prophecy. It it is a a very grand, large-scale prophecy of a child who will come. Who will bear in his name these rather divine titles of wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and prince of peace but it's not just a prophecy that's that's uttered on this grand cosmic scale it's a prophecy that's aimed at your very heart the burdens that weigh upon you and so i want us to explore this this call to enter into this prophecy from the perspective of forgiveness the lifting of this burden of our sin by this child who will be born so let's let's try to sort of wade through this if we can and we we've talked about the different aspects of this passage the 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 main thing I want us to focus on today are verses 4 and 5, I believe. Yes. And so, to get there, we're going to sort of use verses 1 through 3 to lead us into verses 4 and 5. And then we're going to take verses 6 and 7 as sort of the conclusion of what is prophesied for us in verses 4 and 5. Okay. <clears throat> Step one is a call to enter into God's forgiveness. To move from a place of darkness into the light. So, what I'm about to say is not new. This has been true since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin always works the same way. Sin always seeks out the darkness. When we sin, we want to hide it. Uh, There are a few rare souls out there uh, who who want to sin and flaunt it. Uh, The Bible talks about a seared conscience. In, in, in some people's cases, right? And we, you, it doesn't, you, you, you can see that in the world. But for most of us, sin is something we want to hide. And if, if you want to look at us psychologically, there's a great deal of effort that we put into covering our sin. What, what's the first thing Adam and Eve did when they had sinned and they heard God coming into the garden? What did they do? they went and hid, right? And then right after that, uh, you get this beautiful expression of masculinity where Adam says, this woman that you gave me, right? It's her fault. I'm not responsible. Uh, you know, you gave me this hot chick and she made me eat this, right? So I just did whatever she wanted to do. And, uh, God was not terribly impressed with Adam's defense. He, he was not a good lawyer. But uh, this is what we do. We, we want to either hide it, or if that's no longer an option, or when that's no longer an option, we want to start casting blame. Uh, Adam was uh, pretty bold, actually, to not just blame his beautiful wife, but to blame God Himself. Uh, this woman that you gave me, he had fingers flying in every direction, but this one, right? So this is this is human nature one hundred and one. This is not should not be news to you. Um, you know my my favorite stage as a parent of the potty training is. You're not sure when they're ready, but when they when they go behind the the easy chair in the living room to do their thing, right? And they're hiding. That that if they if they know enough to go behind the chair to do that, they know enough to go to use the seat thing. You know what I'm talking about. It's just human nature to hide to hide our shame, and so essentially this prophet is saying in the midst of that shame and in your places that are darkened where you hide, I want there to shine light. I want God's truth, God's grace, God's light, God's mercy and forgiveness to shine on those parts of you and your life. That we're to move from darkness to light. To give to God our despair. How do I say this? When we are in despair, in anguish of our soul, we do not tend to open up to others about it. Is that a fair statement? When we are depressed, that that is a... very in inward turning cycle where we want to sort of get away from everyone else and just turn inward into our own despair. And what's interesting in this passage is God starts there. He, he basically says this is universal to humanity, to, to want to turn inward, to hide our shame, to sort of retreat into darkness where no one can see what we're going through. And he says, I want those people to know my light will shine. And so we're to give him our despair and receive from him the hope of, of light and healing and grace Upon the soul that would otherwise be retreated into darkness and shame and grief. We're to move from darkness to light, and we're to move from gloom to joy. Uh, This passage is um, powerfully accurate in the diagnosis of what our problem is and the application of what our need is. We need to be brought out of our shell and into the light and grace of God's love. Part of what you see in the word in the way that this passage is worded is there is a there is a past aspect to our darkness and despair. There is a forward-looking aspect to our joy and Rejoicing, same root word, in the future. This is a forward-looking, hope-giving passage. Part of that is that we're to give God our shame and the knowledge that this is a function of the past. It is done. It is forgiven. It is taken. The burden is lifted. We'll see that in just a minute. But this idea that our past cannot define us. We have a new understanding of who we are in Christ that is very much future-driven. How do I say this? I'm no better at this than you are. I don't tend to look at myself in a futuristic sense, In a hopeful sense, I don't tend to look at my spouse or my kids or my friends or my, certainly not my family, in a forward-looking sense. I tend to see them in terms of what they've done to me in the past. That's who they are, and so I'm going to relate to them in such a way that I don't want to let them do that to me again. Does that make sense? The truth is we have all been redefined in, in terms of who we centrally are. We're not defined by our past. We're defined by a future in Christ. And in that future is joy and hope and change and progress and renewal. All right. So to enter this forgiveness means to give him our shame as as a function of the past and to receive his gladness of heart you see this he, this passage talks about the harvest joy as at the time of harvest hard for us to relate to but uh you got to think about this like a farmer you work all year and you get one day to see what your profits are going to be <laughs> the harvest and when the harvest is done, you have this enormous uh, pile of grain. In most cases, um, and that enormous pile of grain, when you're all finished, is what determines uh, how you're going to live for the next year until the next harvest. So there's a there's a point at that stage in the farming process where you're just relieved, you're thrilled, you're indescribably glad that all that work is over and you have security for the foreseeable future. Um, That gladness is the gladness that God wants us to have in relation to our own hearts and him. That we are relieved, we are glad, we are thrilled that he is forgiving us, that he has wipe that away. And we're going to turn that corner and look at this um, passage in, in the very place where it where it points to the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. So we enter his forgiveness by moving from darkness to light and we are to enjoy his forgiveness as we see uh, verse 4 is a call to lay down our sin, to lay down the burden of our sin before God. It's a promise that the hold that our sin has upon us will be broken and that its weight will be lifted. Your guilt is taken. It's dealt with. It's gone. Here's the amazing thing about the human heart. When sin is committed, either by us or against us, we tend to feel guilty. We tend to feel burdened. We tend to feel the weight of that transgression. Whether we did it or someone did it to us, it bears weight upon us. And the the central message in this passage, that will be lifted. Its hold will be broken, its grip will be released, and its weight will be taken off. And so we have this prophetic promise that our sin will be taken away. We can lay it down before God. And Did you see the part of the passage, this is where the passage gets a little bit weird, but it talks about like garments rolled in blood, warriors' boots for the battle, and garments rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Did you see that in there? It's kind of a a bizarre metaphor um, for us. But I'll just remind you, war was a much more present reality in the ancient world than it is for us. Most of our wars take place in places that we'd never heard of until we started dropping bombs on them. That's where most of our wars currently take place. In this day and time, wars took place all around you. And against your village or city, it it was a common reality. And so this idea that you have to fight... To protect what is yours. That you have to defend what is yours against an invading force. That there's a constant sense of vigilance about being human. I I believe what Isaiah is pointing to here is our striving. We talked a little bit about the self-protection earlier that we're all involved in this covering behavior. We don't want other people to see our shame. Added to that is a constant sense of striving in the human heart to be okay, to be accepted, to be approved, to be clean or perceived as clean by others, by God, what have you. The people to whom Isaiah is prophesying were striving on all sides they were striving to survive in their political context their geopolitical context they were striving to stay in God's favor because some of them the better ones anyway believed that the only hope they had for survival as a nation was their obedience to God so if we if we please God he'll he'll preserve us was sort of the mentality and the prophet is, in a way, saying, rest, rest. You will never be able to preserve yourselves. That's my job. And or, or God is saying that through the prophet, I should say. So there is this sense in which verse 5 is a call To cease our striving. To recognize that all of our strivings will be burned as fuel for the fire. They're not going to last. What we need to take away from that is the truth that all of our... All of that for which we are striving comes at Christ's expense. That this child who will be born will we'll take care of that for us. We can rest in his gift. It all comes at his expense. It all comes by grace. And we talked last week a little bit about that reference to Midian in that passage in verse 4. is a, a reference to a battle in the book of Judges where Gideon uh, is, is called to go to battle. And God says, but don't take your whole army. And he starts... Like honing down the number of men that Gideon can take. And Gideon's facing, you know, 10,000, 20,000. I don't know how many troops he's facing, but there's a lot of people with, with swords in this valley. And God says, just take 300. Like, what? I don't think that's really smart, but okay. And they, they break some clay pots and they light some torches in the middle of the night. The enemy comes running out of their tents, and as they run into each other, they're killing each other. They think that the guy they're running into in the dark is the enemy in their camp. And the army literally defeats itself in the middle of the night in the panic that ensues. And God says, that's how this works. The battle is mine, says the Lord. I will grant you victory at no risk to yourself. I'll take all the risk. I'll go to the cross. I will bear the burden and I will lift it from you. And so this idea that God's forgiveness is a function of his grace, not our going to battle to fend for ourselves or defend ourselves or advance our cause, but the the victory comes when we rest from our striving. And so we're both to enter his forgiveness and enjoy his forgiveness as a function of grace. And we're to extend his forgiveness. This gift is to be re-gifted, if you will. So, did you see or notice, it seems like a weird thing to say, that this child will be born and the government will be upon his shoulders. Well, this is right now is a great exercise in in what you do when the government is put upon your shoulders. You start building your cabinet for better or for worse. You start picking out the people who are going to help you fulfill your mandate, right? That word government applied to Christ implies that you have a part to play that you are involved in the administration of this grace and forgiveness to the world. You have a place at the table. You have a calling, if you will, to not just receive God's forgiveness and enjoy God's forgiveness, but to extend God's forgiveness. And so I want us to look at the, the conclusion of this passage in that lens, this idea that if Christ is forming a government, he's including you in that administration. He's including you as part of his plan to extend his grace and forgiveness to the world. You are to follow his lead as the authority, as God's presence on earth. We're to follow Christ's lead in that we are called to be a source, to reflect who he is, to be a source of wisdom and strength to those around us. He is called a Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and he's laying upon you that mantle of authority. He's giving you a part in the application or replication of that calling to extend wisdom and strength. To those who are around you. To be a source of stability and peace in the lives and hearts of those around you. Not always what I do best. I'm looking at Kathy. So, you know, this isn't about report cards. This is about grace, right? But my calling is to impart wisdom and strength to you and stability, to bring stability and peace into your life. How does that strike you? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not asking how I'm doing. We're, we're Presbyterian. We don't talk back. This is one-way dialogue. It's a monologue, not a dialogue. But there it is. There it is. We are part of this administration of Christ's love in the world. We have a place in His government. We are called to reflect this nature of God to others. So that when, when we engage with someone else, when we interact with others, they leave strengthened and at a place of greater peace than when we found them. That's our calling because that's exactly what Christ has done for us through his forgiveness, through the forgiveness, the ceasing of our striving, the rest and peace that we have in him literally enables us to give that to others, to be a source of wisdom and strength and stability and peace And so as we follow his lead, we are also to pay forward his forgiveness. Think back to that burden that is different for each one of us. The burden that comes from what we have done or not done. And the burden that comes from what others have done or not done to us. Think about that burden being lifted in Christ. The first action of your soul is to see that forgiveness applied to yourself. And it's, it's not the same as forgiving yourself. Does that make sense? It's entering into the fullness of your understanding that God has forgiven you, that you're clean, you're done, it's finished. Those were among Christ's dying words on the cross. It is finished. Your striving has come to an end. And so that this forgiveness is, You see it as granted to you that you're included in this cosmic but very personal prophecy. It's aimed not just at history but at your very heart and soul. It applies to you and then you're called to apply it to others, to roll it forward into the lives of the people around you. This is no small thing To forgive. This is cosmic again in scale. It it sort of goes from this cosmic prophecy to a very pointed place of the burdens in each of our souls. And then explodes back out into the call to forgive. To universally forgive. I, I will just say this. I don't believe that forgiveness is easy. I believe that forgiveness is very hard work. And it involves drilling down into the core of who we are and letting God's forgiveness be poured out there. And then we can begin to have a scope for the uh, understanding for the scope of forgiveness that's called from us. But I'll just, I'll try to leave you with this. This prophecy is not just about the coming of Jesus, it's about everything that comes with him into our hearts and souls. And so it is about hope, it is about joy. And it is about forgiveness. That we approximate again and again God's forgiveness for us. And we begin to roll that forward to the undeserving others who we are called to forgive. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we marvel at your word. That you pack into a few verses... All of these cosmic universal truths, and then you bring them down to the point of a pen and poke them into our hearts and souls at the very places we need them. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, for sending this gift into the world to bring hope and joy and forgiveness to our hearts and souls, and teach us and lead us into rolling that forward into the lives of those around us, that they might be more strengthened and peaceful as the result of interacting with us. May we be those who receive your light and shine it into dark and hurting places as you have done to us.